Welcome to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great voice services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward, and I'm joined today by Rita Renke. Rita joined the award consulting team in February on a part-time basis following her retirement from Metaswitch, where she ran the North America translations team. Welcome, Rita. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely to be here. Absolutely. It's a delight to have a chat with you. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a slightly odd thing, and then we'll kind of back up into career history. But you have quite a reputation among the Metaswitch customer base. Um, in fact, somebody described you as the Metaswitch translations goddess. Now, we'll get into your history, but how did you become so revered? I, I know you did some training. What, what, what led to this? I have no idea, frankly, unless it's just because translations is such a peculiar arcane sub-discipline within, within telecommunications that most people avoid it. So if you sound like you know something about it, then you were clearly odd. And goddess is one thing. Really intense translations assistant was the um, another term I had. So R-I-T-A, really R-I-T-A. intense yeah. translations assistant. Um, I think it's just because I do get excited about it as much as one can get excited about something like that because it's all fun logic puzzles and so i'm immediately extraordinary because ordinary people don't <laughs> that makes sense to me yes you're excited about something that other people find hard and uh, hence the reputation um well yeah you mentioned um you mentioned as much as people can get excited about about telecoms and you mentioned that uh, translations is almost an arcane art it's fair to say that telephony was not your first love is that right that's true. It is my second career. I had 25 years as an archaeologist in New England before I moved over to actually earning money. <clears throat> yeah, you, you told me that um, today you'd ideally like to spend our entire time talking about archaeology, um, which we might not be able to manage in its entirety. But maybe if we if we can indulge that for a moment, um, what are some of your memorable moments in, in your archaeological study? Is I mean, I'm assuming you didn't ever fall into pits of snakes or get chased by Nazis. That's a bit of a stereotype. Just just a touch. I did fall into pits on occasion. I had rocks dropped on my head when I was hanging from my hips into a pit, but um, which may account for the whole translations thing. <laughs> but no, I mean, I um, prior to my um, master's degree, I did work in pre-contact, right? So ancient North America. Um, and so it was really exciting to work on some sites that have been occupied 10 or 12,000 years ago and to think about this continent having a deep history where so often, oh no, only Europe has a deep history because we only have history. It's like, no, 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 no. There's, you know, a long rooted deep history here. And to, to sort of get a little, a little peek into that was, um, was always exciting and fun and it makes you think as you're just out there walking that people have been walking on this landscape and utilizing this landscape and seeing it for thousands of years and you're not you're not going anywhere that somebody else hasn't been before yeah that's quite a mindset shift i know as a british person living in california right particularly on the san francisco bay area um there's basically nothing here that's more than about 115 years old, right? Since 1906. Right. So, you know, people are talking about old houses that were built in the 1930s. And I'm like, that's not old. You know, I, I grew up in England where we've got castles. We, you know, I grew up in a town right. called, or near a town called Newcastle, 
which was established in the 14th century. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I often mock America's lack of history, but you're right. It, it's there's plenty of history there. It's just right. um, different eras. Yeah. yeah, and then after my master's, I sort of shifted and said, well, you know, I'll I'll do a bit of my own roots because um, I started out as an undergraduate thinking I was going to major in history and and hit anthropology instead and never looked back. But I did um, historic period archaeology in New England. So I worked at a in a little village called Deerfield, Massachusetts, a lot, where the English settled um, six I should know the dates. I don't remember them anymore. But you know, in the in the mid 17th century, um, when they were the the northwest corner of the British Empire at that mm -hmm. point. <laughs> so it was um, the village is still uh, surprisingly intact. The the house lots and the street of that part of the town, you know, are still laid out the same way. And there are houses hundreds of years old, and I got to look back through at one site in particular, all the way back through to the early settlement, 17th century. We found the stain from the a sillstone of of a house or a barn or whatever that we knew was very old given where it was in the orientation all the way up through the 1940s we in fact had some women who would come back to this house every summer because they had spent summer vacations there with their aunt and uncle mm -hmm. and um, they came to watch us do the archaeology and one year we had pulled up this small metal um toy truck mm -hmm. and they you know we were just showing it to me <gasps> I remember that truck. We used to play with that truck right here. It's like, yep, well, you <laughs> left it and it got buried. So you know, we have pictures of them holding proudly beaming with their little rusty truck, which they took home with them. <laughs> I love the the contrast with the tens of thousands of years old archaeology. And now the I'm doing archaeological digs and finding something that this person remembers from their childhood memory. Yep. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the interesting things about archaeology is its depth and breadth. It's, it's very yeah. wonderful. I remember my grandfather complaining that I was learning history in school and it was the Second World War. And he was like, that's not history. You know, I, I, was, I was in that. Yeah. So, um, OK, so you spent much of your early career doing archaeology and yet somehow you spent the latter part of your career doing telecoms. How on earth did that transition happen? It doesn't seem like a career path that somebody would design. No, no. Can you say serendipity? Um, I have well, a, <laughs> right, some mornings, uh, a friend of mine, uh, my husband's was the director of engineering for a small reseller, Verizon reseller in Massachusetts. And um, he hired me in order to start writing internal white papers because he figured, OK, you know, you're smart. You can you can learn this and write papers for us and keep track of our stuff. You know, mm -hmm. can you say MetaSwitch knowledge base? Right. So the <laughs> <Yes>. same <laughs> sort of thing. Start start creating all of that. And um, then he promptly got fired and they moved from being a reseller to going CLEC and needing to put in a switch, at which point they suddenly realized, oh, we need somebody to do translations. Well, you're not doing anything, you do them. Right. And then in three months, we had our first ladder up on, on Telcordia's soft switch. I think mm -hmm. you may have been the only people with a running Telcordia soft switch. But, and then, so there it went. <laughs> never look back. There, you never look back. Or I always look back, I don't know which. <laughs> Well, as an archaeologist, that's probably a, a good a good thing. Um, all right, so we've been talking about translations as if everybody knows what it is. Um, but in case somebody's listening to this who doesn't know what switch translations is all about, like, yeah, what is it? What is the point of translations? Right. This this is like talking to everyone in my family. So, what is it you do? 
So the way I tell them is you pick up the phone. I know who you are. I know your phone number. I look at the way you dial digits and I know what digits you can dial, how you can dial them. I know how to bill you for that call and I know how to get it to where it needs to go. So I'm the one who goes through the logic of the if then statements to say this person can dial this call seven digits and it's going to be a local call and it's going to go out that trunk group. That's and I'm going to, you know, bill it properly. So that, that's what translations do. Okay. That was Without very a, well put. The switches would just sit there whirring, being happy little mechanical things. So without translations, the switches are really pointless. They don't do anything. That's right. Excellent. Okay. We are yeah. key. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, very important role. Um, to kind of build a little bit on what you just said, in the in the Metaswitch world, um, the translations, the config sets are split into four areas, which I think map pretty well to what you just described. Um, again, at a fairly high level, could you describe what those are and how those different areas um, map to the different functions you were talking about? Yep. So the, the first part, which is in many ways the most incidental part, are digit maps. And those are the things that tell the switch when to stop collecting any digits that someone is dialing. It's like, okay, this is a pattern that's acceptable. And I've waited and you aren't giving me anything else. So zoom, send that off to the rest of the switch to begin processing. Um, which, is, should... which is um, interesting because in the world of cell phones, there is no such thing as digit maps. You actually have to hit the go button when you want yep. to dial, which it wasn't, is not, of course not the case on a, a landline. Right, right. And it's, it's, I wish it were all like that. <laughs> because you know it, it's best if you if you think of digit maps as very simple and just basically make sure that people can dial the digits they want to and get them to the switch and we'll deal with whether or not they dialed it properly right the switch logic will will handle that um the only thing that gets it all complicated or gnarly with it is where you have seven digit dialing and ten digit dialing because if you don't say, well, you dialed seven digits, but maybe they're going to dial another three, so I better wait around for a little bit. You know, you, you end up with some post-dial delay issues and things like that. But, you know, just tell everybody to dial 10 digits. Much easier. I'm not yes. supposed to say that, am I? Oops. I, uh, well, I don't know. We're, we're moving more and more to that <laughs> way because so. the, the FCC has recently pushed a lot of LATAs to move to 10-digit dialing in order to make room for the 988 uh, suicide hotline code. Yes. Yes, all many, many of the NPAs, but not mine. So I still have seven-digit local dialing where I am. It's just like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Although I admit, 36 years ago, when I first moved to a house in a, in a very small town in this area, for about the next six months, we still had four-digit dialing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was That's pretty bizarre. And I didn't know impressive. anybody in town, so I couldn't use it. I was just dying to be able to dial four <laughs> digits, but no. <laughs> I mean, today, I'm, you know, as a tourist, you sometimes travel through a small rural town. You'll see the business has their phone number written on the side, and they've got the seven-digit phone number. And as a tourist with your cell phone, you're like, that doesn't help me at all because I don't know how to dial that because I don't know what my MPA is around here. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yep. But, you know, it's good. So that's, that's digit maps, and that's pretty straightforward and and easy and most SIP devices have extremely simple digit maps because just like with cell phones, very often with SIP devices, you're gonna dial the digits and then you're gonna press send effectively yep. um, to actually dial. But it's it's number validation, right? Which is the big chunk, the big brains of a Metaswitch config set because that's the piece that says, okay, I've got these digits. Now, what do I do with them? Mm -hmm. you know, what do they mean? How are they handled? What am, 
is it okay that they dialed that, right? And one of the things that's very different, I think, in the meta switch logic compared to many traditional switches is that whatever is dialed and is delivered to the meta switch, to the, to the CFS, we're going to process it and we're going to decide at the end whether or not it was okay that they dialed it like that. Mm-hmm. So I know in a, in a lot of the traditional, the Nortels and the... the Lucent. The Lucent, thank you, was gone. I couldn't come up with it. You know, you've, you've, you look at who that person dialing is, you know, what their number is, and you already know what patterns they're allowed at the very beginning. And so you mm-hmm. kill a lot of calls really quickly. We say it doesn't take that much effort to process this through the tables. Just process it through and then decide whether or not it was an okay way to dial something. So that's what Envy is doing, is looking at those digits. They normalize it so that if it's, assuming it's a national call, it's going to be 10 digits. Doesn't matter if you're only allowed to dial it seven digits, we're going to turn it into 10 first, and then we'll figure out what's to be done with it. And that allows us to be more efficient in NV because once we normalize that, no matter how it was dialed, so putting an NPA on or taking the one or the zero off the front of it, we can look at the same table to figure out what we need to know about that destination. Right, yep. So, you know, go through that and everybody in your switch who dials that 10 digit number, however they dialed it, is going to go through the same sets of tables until you get to their local calling area table. Mm-hmm. What places can this rate center call? Yep. And that's another thing that's a little different um, in most meta switches using what what they now call the default scheme of translations is that those local calling areas aren't based directly on, did you dial this NPA and XX? They are based on, did you dial this rate center? Mm-hmm. Which we figured out because we looked at what NPA and XX you dialed. And so we say, fine, I don't have to list in every single local calling area table, every single NPA and XX that that rate center can dial. Because I look at them all in one place and then I say, okay, did you dial any of the 132 NPA and XXs in Boston? you know, or Los Angeles or whatever, and I don't have to list them all. So you can get a lot of, you can simplify the logic a lot by in one place saying any of these numbers, we'll just call Boston and we don't care which of them it was. And then in future places, you can just say Boston. Yes, exactly. And in an ideal world, that same place where you figure out what rate center and Lado was dialed, you also say, all right, I happen to know that this NPA and XX hangs off of this tandem where I have local trunks to, and this end office where I also have local trunks to, or maybe I don't have local trunks to, um, and you stick those flags on the call as well. Those are attributes, right? When you're mm-hmm. attribute sets, your 1 million series attribute sets that tell you where you called, what ladder it's in, and how you would get there based on the call type. So for those of you who are familiar with the basics of, of these translations, you know, UDA one and two are the rate center and LADA, and then three, four, five, six are a marker to indicate where if it were an inter-LADA call with your own carrier, you would route it. If it were intra-LADA toll with your carrier, if it were local, or if it were direct to an end office where you call it. And again, then when you get to trunk routing, you don't have to look at the NPA and XXs again, because you now have these user-defined attributes on them, which again is a lot more efficient, especially in trunk routing, which is not very efficient with a big, huge table with lots and lots of entries in it. Yeah. We try to avoid those in trunk routing because it's just 
not efficient the way it searches through. So yeah, so the system is designed to gather and record all relevant information as simply as possible early on, so that then later, once you've got all the information together in one place, you can say, okay, based on the attributes, the flags we have, we now know we need to route the call here. Yep, exactly. And generate this build type. So we, I always, I use the analogy for attributes as um, you're getting ready to go on a hike and you, you put a whole bunch of things in your backpack. You know, okay, a warm sweater, water, extra water, snake bite kit, you know, all these things that you might need. And if you don't need them at the end, fine, they just sit there not being used. But, you know, if I need that snake bite kit, it's a good thing that I've got it in my pack. And that that's what that whole process of going through NV and setting up the attributes is for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've never carried a snake bite kit with me on a hike. And I go on a lot of hikes, so I'm worried now. <laughs> yes, have, you, have you sure ever you should it? be. <laughs> Aren't you out there in the West with all those rattlesnakes and things? Well, we, we did we did once encounter a rattlesnake. We were driving across, I think we were driving to the Grand Canyon and we stopped in some desert somewhere and we had our dog with us and there was this, and we let him off leash because it's like we're in the middle of nowhere yes. inside the road. And then suddenly we hear a rattle and see the dog staring at something and we're like, oh, this could go bad really quick. Yeah. So, so oh, we, we grabbed the dog and, and got out of town. It was It was fine, but it could not yeah. have been. That that could be very scary. Yeah, we we just mostly have issues with porcupines and skunks up here when Eric goes hiking. But occasionally, I suppose copperheads. I don't think we've ever actually seen any. And we do have we do have timber rattlers a little bit. Yeah, in England, the only poisonous thing we have are adders, which I don't yes. think I've ever seen one of. So, right, and they're not that bad, right? I don't know. I've, I, I mean, when, when you've got nothing else poisonous, this is the only poisonous creature you have, then we were pretty scared of, of the idea of meeting That's them. Right. But I think if you were in Australia and yeah, I was gonna say. pretty much everything's poisonous, I think you'd be yeah. pretty happy with an adder. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so where'd I get to? Okay, then there's part three, which is the most complicated piece. And that's the on switch and LMP lookups. And that's where you, you figure out, can I look on switch for this number? Um, can I do an LNP query on it? If I do an LNP query, what do I do with the result? Do I say, oh, it's an unallocated number, or do I say, fine, off you go, right away, or you know, what do you do with it? And that's one of the areas that I think gives people the most trouble in getting mm -hmm. it set up. It's it's complicated, and you have to sort of sit there and noodle your way through, you know, how do I want this to behave, and what's the implication. And of course, when you're running a business, you also have that uh, balance of, well, I want to get it right and I want to do it, but I, I don't want to pay for a bunch of dips that I don't really need to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of companies have to decide whether they want to have their staff, they want to spend the money on staff constantly updating config sets as they port numbers in and out. Mm -hmm. So they're doing you know very granulated on switch and LMP lookups, or if they pay the fractions of a penny for some extra dips, but they're workers. You don't have to pay the salary to do that extra stuff. They can do other things. Yeah. But it's complicated. It is. Yeah. There's and yeah, it's interesting how the business um, the business decisions you know come into that. I think that's a, a interesting insight. I, I mean, just to speak to the complexity, there's some kind of table in a MetaSwitch communities article which lists out all the different types of um, number block you can have and then all the consequences of that in terms of pre-dip, post-dip, whether you can route the call off switch or not. And yeah, I, it, it, I have to refer to that if I get into anything remotely complicated. Yeah, the, ma the main thing to always think about is 
what happens if I get back an LRN? Or if I don't get back an L, you know. So is it mine or isn't it mine? And it, it's, yeah, it still gets complicated. And if you're doing a switch migration so that you're sharing codes between mm -hmm. two switches, then it's even uglier and more complicated. Yep. Yeah, just yesterday I was working on a problem of, well, a couple of days ago with uh, with somebody who they they're using um, one of these kind of SIP trunking providers who provides DIDs. And they have a number that has been ported to to them, but not mm -hmm. really to them, to the SIP trunking provider. And so they were using the force LMP lookups tag to kind of uh, indicate whether or not the call had been ported yet. But it didn't work, as I can see you're shaking your head on the video that we have, <laughs> um, the, because the LRN is not there. So it's being ported to the SIP trunking provider, not to them, even though they are building the number on their switch. Right. When you get into that, even there's additional complexities. Are you, are you the switch behind the the owning entity? Right. Um, so, yeah. And I usually tell folks when they're doing that sort of thing, and they've they've got, especially if they're doing nationwide, just put in entries for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and mark them as sparsely owned. So we'll always look on switch. We won't do a dip unless you've got a better match for your own type. Yeah, footprint. And then you just don't have to worry about it when, you know, sales suddenly goes off into who knows where and says, yes, we can sell here. We can sell numbers in Alaska and Hawaii, even though your switch is in Tennessee. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you're an academic kind of type. So if I were to give you a, a, a prompt for a, an essay or a report, um, which said uh, LMP causes most of the problems in the world, discuss, how would you respond to that? <laughs> uh. This is one of my soapboxes. <laughs> it causes problems, but it causes problems because it is inconsistently implemented and the guidelines for how it's to be applied and how it's going to work are not followed in a lot of places. Right? The, um, the whole FCC guidelines and all that business, I, I read them. I read them all. You're probably the only person. <laughs> which Except might be the source of our problems. <laughs> it, perhaps, because I mean, it, it's really pretty clear. If, mm -hmm. if you're going to deliver this call, I mean, unless you have, here's the big caveat over the top of it, of course, is if you as a service provider have an arrangement with the tandem that they're doing their dips, your dips for you, mm -hmm. then fine. But assuming that here you are, you're a switch with your own local interconnections, and maybe you even have your own intralata carrier that you get to route directly to the end officer tandem for local tandem. You're responsible for doing that dip. Yeah. Just, just do it. And then you'll know because we have it set up in the meta switch usually that you go in, you do your dip. And then if you get an LRN back, you'll run back through number validation back through those NPA tables, picking up a new 1 million series attribute set, which has new routing information based on that LRN. Mm -hmm. Because still at this point, you can only have an LRN if you are the code holder, if you in the LURG own that code. Yep. So that's why we only really need to do analysis at the level of the NPA and XX, not to the thousands block. Because mm -hmm. if you've had to pool away a thousands block to some other provider, 
all of those numbers in that one thousands block will be associated with one of their LRNs. Mm-hmm. So who cares what the thousands block is? Where it gets fuzzier is when folks um, don't want to do the dips um, because they're figuring, well, you know, I can just put it at the seven-digit level, you know, NPANXXX, and figure that almost all the calls on that thousands block are going to go to this company, and that's good enough. Or what gets me most infuriated is when the big guys, the tandem holders, the big tandem holders, say they you can't route this call on a local trunk to this tandem where that LRN homes because that's a toll LRN from your calling party. There is no such thing as a toll LRN. Yeah. That's it's just bogus. You did not call the LRN. You called this other number, which is ported to that LRN. It's not toll. I mean, I always jump up and down. See, I warned you. You shouldn't talk to me about. Oh, I know. That. I know. I know. I yes. The, <laughs> uh, yeah. For me, it, it certainly is confusing, and I can understand why people are confused by this. The idea that the LRN may not be local to you, even though. The call, the original call, was local, and basically you can you can port anywhere within the the LATA. Is that correct? Right. Well, you can only port service providers within your rate center, but that LRN may be anywhere within the LATA. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the the, okay. the porting yeah. is local, is within the rate center, but the LRN could be anywhere in the LATA, and yeah, understandably that causes some confusion. But really, the people who are doing switch translations on their tandems should know this. Yes, they should. I mean, and it, it's um, th- this problem became much more exacerbated in the last 15 years when, like when I f- was first working, you could get an LRN in every block you had. You could get mm-hmm. an LRN. So you had an LRN, if you had four tandems in your ladder, you could have an LRN on each one of those tandems, you know, and you'd be all set because you could, if you ported from something that was local to that tandem, you used that LRN for it, right? Yep. Every, and everything was good. But increasingly, as there have become more and more providers, many providers get a single LRN. Mm-hmm. So they want to serve the LADA, but you know, their one LRN is in the eastern half of the LADA, and this particular customer that they're porting in is in the western half. They they can't do anything about that. Yeah. You know, and it's hard for small providers to say, well, I don't have any local calls out to that other tandem. Why should I put trunks out to that tandem? Well, you know, these days you have local calls out there. Yeah. Yeah. One of the challenges of the of the PSTN in general is that it relies on everybody being a good actor, right? Everybody doing things according to the rules and being communicative if there's a problem and Sadly, you know, that's so often not true. It's hard to get all of these companies to interact. I mean, regularly a small, you know, ILEC is going to struggle to even communicate with an AT&T or somebody like that who's got mm-hmm. a big tandem. Um, you know, we've heard a bunch of problems over the last few years with, you know, rural call completion where you've got least cost routers who just decide to dump a call because it's too expensive to deliver it. And, yeah. you know, not to mention Stershaken, which is a, technology which is good but relies on everybody doing it and just yes. all of the complexities in having a network a shared network made up of so many constituent parts um, is yeah very hard to make it actually work in practice in all cases yes i i agree and now that we're moving towards national portability it will become even more interesting so Absolutely. you know you move back from san francisco or 
to the Bay Area, to Boston, you can keep your Oakland number if you want to, or San Francisco number. I don't know particularly why you would want to, but you could do that. <laughs> and that's that's going to be the new really big challenge that they're still trying to figure out exactly how to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and again, I think um, in a lot of ways, you know, cell phones kind of lead the way in terms of what people expect. People already do this with cell phones. You know, you you can tell where somebody lived 20 years ago by what their cell phone MPA is. Yep. Right. And they tend to keep it. They, they don't you know change it just because they move to a new place. And maybe that will become true with, you know, with business lines and landlines as well. You right. Know, we'll we'll see. I'm not sure yeah. if. if the amount of effort involved in getting national number portability implemented seems very significant, um, but you know we're kind of getting close with stir shaken, so yeah. maybe that'll be on the FTC's uh, list next. Yeah, well, it is. They say they are implementing it, and they've they've done a couple of things thus far, which um, the party responsible for the dip was always dictated to be the n minus one provider, right? So mm -hmm. if you were not handing off to a carrier, you had to do the dip on a portable code. They've removed that and say anybody can do a dip anywhere along the way, which would be part of what you would need to do for national portability. So people are going to start either handing everything off to some of the big SIP providers and let them deal with it, mm -hmm. or they're going to have to start dipping everything. Yeah. And hopefully with that kind of volume, then dipping costs go down or something even smaller than they are now. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. challenge. Um, in the interest of completion, I guess we oh, should yes. mention trunk routing. Um, yes. Although we've we've touched on what it's for at least uh, earlier, but yeah. what's trunk routing, Rita? Trunk routing is once you've decided that yes, this is a good call, and yes, I know where it's going, and where it's going is not on my switch. How do I get it to go where it actually needs to go? And if it couldn't go in my first choice, then what do I do with it? So this is where you set up your actual routing trees, if you will, and your your route lists on who's going to. Do I want this call to go to the end office and then overflow to the local tandem and then hand over to one of my offboard SIP providers, just you know, somebody else that can get it to go there? Or, or is it like end office and that's it? Tough noogies. Sorry. Yep. So it's that kind of logic. And the more you can use information that you set through all of those attributes in number validation, once you get to trunk routing and not look at actual digits again, the more efficient your trunk routing is going to be. Yep. Yeah. So it sounds like your best practice is definitely to have trunk routing be as simple as possible. Um, the only thing that has to be in there really is the overflow routing logic. Um, and then most of the setup, most of the logic would happen earlier in number validation. Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for that uh, walkthrough of you know the big picture of what translations is and, and how it works. Um, before we you know begin to wrap, I was wondering, in terms of maybe some some practical things people could look at, what are a handful of common mistakes that you see people making? Or if if I asked you to audit someone's translations, what are the things you're looking for that you typically find are maybe not wrong, but could be improved? One sort of most fundamental kind of rule that I always have in my head is one table does one thing. So when you have a table that is looking at call type and dialing pattern and maybe some other random line class code, you're just making a headache for yourself because it's all these, what, what is it? Get yourself to a table, <laughs> let it do the one thing. If everything can't, can't be matched right there, 
on that one thing that you're trying to do, send everything that doesn't match to another table where you look for something else. So uh, obviously that's that sounds very absolute and categorical and it's not quite that straightforward, but as a guideline, <laughs> one table does one thing. Yep. <sighs> the other, yeah, the other things, name things. Name things. <laughs> one of the most horrifying things I ever saw was to log into somebody's switch and the entire trunk routing section, which was large, had no table one, descriptions. Table, two, table, table one, three. table two, each entry was entry one, two, three, four, five. Oh my God, does it still work? Of course it works. But do you, can you look at it and try to get a sense? No. So those those two are, are biggies. And yeah. yeah, as someone who used to write code in the distant past, it was certainly... I mean, writing code for yourself as a hobby is, is one thing, but certainly once I was writing code, you know, for Metaswitch as a profession, it is drilled into you very strongly that any time you do anything, you write a comment explaining what you're doing and why. Yes. <laughs> and I think the same is true for translations, right? There should never yep. be an action that's taken which isn't explained. Yep, absolutely. And um, don't have too many config sets. <laughs> you should be striving to have three config sets at any given time. It doesn't matter if they're disabled. They're still hogging memory. Get rid of them. How are you possibly going to go back to a config set that's five years old? Yeah. You're not going to. So get rid of it. If it's yeah. something that, that you have some deep, deep attachment to, you know, export it and set it somewhere that you can, you can have at it later when you need to. And for all those people who have listened to this and immediately gone into their switch with the intent of deleting 10 unused config sets, you're about to hit an alarm that says, don't delete too many things at once because I'm worried that you're a hacker or something and you're acting suspiciously. So yes. uh, be, be warned. I'm not, not sure what the limit I think is, but I think- I think it's three in 15 minutes. Okay, all right. So yeah, don't <laughs> delete them you know, in slow, in small doses, in moderation. Yeah. Yes, yes, moderation <laughs> in all things, as my mother used to say. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Rita, for um, taking the time to talk with me and for giving us a, a exploration of translations and uh, some archaeology. So at this point in you know your life, you're semi-retired. You know you're working part time for for me, which I am delighted uh, to be the case. Um, but you're also semi-retired. So what does life look like when you're not helping out our clients? What what are you doing? Are you Knowing you, I'm guessing reading books is part of the answer, but yeah. how are you spending your time these days? That's a large part of it. I read as much as I can. Uh, I read a lot of, they're now calling it speculative fiction rather than fantasy or sci-fi. Um, so I read a lot of that. I also read linguistics. I read Anglo-Saxon history, uh, read natural history. We also have a garden. I'm sort of looking out my window at the garden now. So this is a busy time for that. In fact, once we finish, I need to go out there and help fix the last garden bed that needs fixing. Um, Excellent. Baking. I just made, made the maked. I made <laughs> the dog biscuits this morning, so the house is actually full of the smell of fresh baked dog biscuits. That feels such a waste. As a as a somebody who enjoys receiving baking, I yeah, we do not bake for our dog. He gets the kibble out of the bag. Yeah, well, it's, it, he gets the kibble out of the bag, but the biscuits, you never know, really know what's in those biscuits, and making them yourselves is way cheaper. And you know, Okay. So, Fair enough. I'll make the biscuits. <laughs> and bread, a <laughs> lot of bread. Sorry, what is it with translations and baking? Because Pam also, who's Metaswitch's yes. translations guru, she's a huge baker. And, yes, right? she is. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Something. I guess it's all that measuring and, and logic and putting disparate things together to make some brand new lovely thing. 
I guess so. Yeah, it's a very scientific. Baking, baking more than cooking is a very scientific pursuit. So. Oh, it's all good. I have to make some uh, ginger cherry shortbread this week. That sounds very nice. If you want to yeah. mail some Yum. across the country, I will happily be a recipient, <laughs> although I imagine it might not be as good by the time it gets here. That's probably true. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I had better let you get to your uh, planting and your garden. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. For those listening, uh, if you enjoyed this discussion, then please join us again next time for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much. <laughs>